hey, what is so valuable to you? What is so valuable to you that you would go through the sewage to retrieve it? What, what means so much to you that you would get dirty, that you would go through the sewage to retrieve it? I'm sure that if you dropped a coin or if a, a, a couple bucks or something, you would probably say, hey, that's okay, I won't do that. But what if it were a, a wedding ring? What if it was some special thing? What, what is so valuable to do? Your phone. Uh, that you might retrieve it uh, from such a gross situation. Maybe your kids. I appreciate, I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability, Miss Yvonne. Uh, Ravi Zacharias tells this story uh, of when he was ministering in Vietnam. This is in 70, 71. He met a, a Vietnam, Vietnamese guy there named Haiyan Pham. Haiyan Pham. And Haiyan uh, became a believer, a Vietnamese believer, and he was instrumental in translating for some of the missionaries in Vietnam, including Ravi Zacharias and, and even some of the military forces there. Uh, during the war. And after uh, Vietnam fell, uh, Haiyan was imprisoned, and uh, he was uh, basically imprisoned for being a traitor. And part of his imprisonment in this imprisonment camp, what they did to him is they just, they just threw at him all sorts of communist and Marxist material. They wouldn't let him read anything else uh, but, but communist materials. And so he's reading Marx and all these things and, and getting a wash in uh, kind of communist and atheistic thought, and it begins to take its toll on Haiyan, who, who had professed faith in Christ. And uh, it, it began to take its toll on him, and he thought, well, maybe I've been lied to. Maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe the West, uh, people from the West have de- deceived me. So he determined that tomorrow, the next day, the following day, when he awakened, he would not pray anymore or think anymore uh, about his faith. But the next morning, he was assigned uh, the dreaded duty, the, de- the dreaded shore of cleaning the prison latrines. Not toilets, but latrines. And as, as Haiyan was doing this, he cleaned out a tin can that was overflowing with toilet paper. And his eye caught what seemed to be some English printed on this piece of paper. And he hurriedly grabbed it and washed it and cleaned it off and then stuffed it in his pocket. And then later that evening, as his uh, roommates went to bed, he pulled out that piece of paper uh, to read it. And as he read that piece of paper, he saw at the top of it, Romans chapter 8. And trembling, he began to read and he got to verse 28 that says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it goes on in Romans 8 and says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Haiyan wept. And he cried out to God and he asked for forgiveness. And that day that was supposed to be the first day that he would not pray again, God interrupted his world and changed things. And the next day, Haiyan went to the commanding officer there in the camp, and he asked if he could, his permanent chore could be to clean the latrines because he figured that there was some officer who was using the Bible as his toilet paper, and he could collect that Bible and wipe off and clean the pieces of paper and read the Holy Scriptures. What's so valuable to you that you would go to the extent of that to salvage it 
How valuable is your faith to you? How valuable is the Word of God to you? We are in a study of the book of Romans, and some have said that Romans, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of a previous generation, called Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter ever written. John Stott says that in the last verses of Romans 8, the apostle soars to sublime heights unequaled elsewhere in the New Testament. The book of Romans was given to us to delineate and to explain this incredible good news that we have in Jesus. It's a book about the good news. And don't we need some good news? Amidst fires and hurricanes and the death of loved ones and all the other threats of North Korea, earthquakes in Mexico, personal hurt, don't we need some good news? Romans, and particularly Romans chapter 8, gives us this powerful good news that whether you're in a communist prison camp or you're just a stressed out suburbanite can give you hope to overcome the difficulties in your life and to face those difficulties with the right perspective. We said, uh, as we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, we said that it begins with this wonderful news of no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with this great uh, crescendo today, we'll see in verse 39, that there is no separation from God's love. The main character in Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit, and you see there the outline. If you just think about the Holy Spirit's work through Romans chapter 8, you see that he's the spirit of life and liberty, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of hope, and today, help, and ultimately, glory and security. It's a wonderful passage, one that I won't be able to do justice, but one that holds so much hope and so much promise for us, no matter what that bad news is that we faced yesterday or will face today. The passage uh, kind of breaks down like this. Point number one is we, we see what we don't know. We see our weakness. Point number two, heading number two, is, is we see our confidence. We, we see what we do know. So what we don't know, what we do know, and then the reason for our confidence there at the end of the passage. So let's jump in here, and we'll begin at verses 26 and 27. So Romans chapter 8, join me uh, there. Open your Bibles with me, if you will. Uh, and let's begin reading, uh, first of all, just verse, verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, Paul begins, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What we see here in this first part, is that we see our weakness. Anybody here feel weak? Anybody here feel inadequate, whether it's, it's inadequate uh, as a parent, whether it's inadequate or weak uh, to provide for your family, just weak to make the right decision? God, help me. I'm not sure what to do here. Anybody feel weak? Well, this beginning part of this passage says that God helps us in our weakness, and the weakness that Paul is highlighting here is one of our weaknesses, is that we don't even know how to pray. We don't even know what we should pray for. Now, certainly, I mean, 
often, we, we know what to pray. God, we, here's what I need. Here's what I would like for you to come through. But there are some times when you're just, we're ju- you're just so taxed. You're just so uh, beyond yourself that you, you just fall in your face and say, God, I don't even know what to ask for here. We are, we're, we're weak, weak people. So weak, we don't even know how to pray rightly. But the promise here, the wonderful news here in these verses is that even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with words that we can't even bring up, with words that we can't even pull from, from our heart or from our head. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Uh, Last week, I was, we were out of town. We were in Alabama, and Jim Herring did a wonderful job bringing the word to us last week. And I was listening to the message on the way home in the car, I was listening to the podcast. And, and I was so touched that Jim began his time in the word by praying for us, by praying for me. Man, that, that meant so much to me. Doesn't it mean a lot to you when, when someone says, I've been praying for you? Man, doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that give you just a, a, a sense of security and a, and a gratefulness when someone says, man, I've, I've been praying for you. You know, wow, thank you so much. Folks, think about this. God himself is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. And, and not only the Holy Spirit, but if you, look, if you drop down to verse 34, look, the whole, not only is the Holy Spirit praying as you don't know what to pray, but look at verse 34. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, was raised, who is the, at the right hand of God interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And and Jesus hasn't just died and risen from the dead, but even today he sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us, interceding, saying, Father, Ross is your son. Father, Dan is your son. Jamie is your son, your daughter, excuse me. He's interceding. He's saying, I've covered their, their their." sin. I've, I've taken their guilt. The Spirit and the Son are interceding on our behalf. Man, that ought to bring a, a comfort and a security to our hearts. We think a lot about prayer, and, and often we think, hey, we're praying to God. Think about it like this. God also is praying for us. An old uh, saying of another uh, previous generation, Robert Murray McShane said this, if I could hear p- Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. If I could hear Christ in the next room praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. The wonderful strength that we have in, the, in this passage here is that even though we are weak, even though we do not know what to pray for, God himself is praying with us. God himself is praying for us. We're weak people. But not only are we weak people, admittedly weak people, but the passage moves on to show us that not only are we weak, but we're also confident people because the second uh, part of this is, is, is what we do know. Point number two is what we do know. So verse 27 says, we don't know what to pray for. But look, verse 28 begins like this. And we know. We have this confidence in God. Begin uh, reading with me verse 28 through 30. It says, and we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, verse 28 is probably one of uh, the most popular verses in Romans. It's probably one of the most popular verses in all of the New Testament, in fact. And it, it, it's a great promise. It's a great promise. But before we look at it, I'd like to, first of all, talk about what it doesn't mean. There's, I think in this passage, there are some poor interpretations, and there's also uh, uh, sometimes a poor timing in the way that we use Romans 8.28. Okay, so first of all, the poor interpretations. Notice, first of all, that it does not say that all things are good. Okay? It does not say that all things are good. The Bible here, Paul is not saying that hurricanes are good or that the death of a loved one is good. That's not his point. There are bad things. There are holy things and there are unholy things. There's goodness and there's sinfulness. So, number one, it does not say that all things are good. Secondly, it does not say that God is the cause of all things. Now, I have to be careful here, and there's a lot to unpack here we don't have time for. Uh, this should, we should have a slide for this, Eric. Um, but he's also not saying in this passage that God is the cause of everything that happens. And this is tricky because as believers, we, we, we affirm that God is sovereign. He is, in fact, sovereign over all things. But I think we have to be careful when we say God caused this. So a few years ago, um, a guy walked off the street, drove up here to the church, knocked on the office building and wanted to talk to a pastor because he came in and he had some questions about what we believed and what kind of church, what as a church we might teach. And he wanted, he wanted to hear me say that God caused 9-11. And I said, well, man, here's the trick in that. The trick is that, yes, we affirm that God is sovereign over all things. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows what's going to happen today. He knows what's going to happen a thousand years from now. He is fully in control. And yet the Bible also says that, that God is not the author of sin. And so uh, philosophers and theologians talk about primary causes and secondary causes. And so everything that happens in this world does come through the sovereign hands of God. But we have to be careful and not say that things are, off, are always directly caused by God. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. And if you have questions about that, ask someone smarter than me. Okay, but, but it's tricky because God is sovereign over all things. And yes, God is holy and he is completely good. And yet, as uh, Johnny Erickson Tata sometimes says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So it does not say that all things are good. It does not say that God causes all things. And thirdly, it does not mean good in the way that we sometimes want good to mean, okay? All things work together for those who love God we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's a specific audience he's talking about, and then he said these, these things that may not all be good in themselves work together for our good. What is the good there? Well, we're tempted <clears throat> as modern American readers to say, oh, good, God's working out for my good, so that must mean that things are going to work out the way I like them. 
Like, I'm going to get that promotion. Or my good is those wants that I want. He's not saying here that God works all things together for our wants. He's saying that God works all things together for our ultimate good. And I think he shows us what that ultimate good is as we go into verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, he explains, for those whom he foreknew and also predestined to be For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's what I think is happening. I think verse 29 is describing the good that we get in verse 28. The good that God has for us is becoming like Jesus. Being conformed to the image of his son. So that doesn't, Paul is not promising here that everything's going to be rosy. That we're going to get every want that we want. And if you take that view of Romans 8, 28, hey, say that you just lost your job. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Hang on. What does that mean? What does that mean? It can't be that. If you look look further, look down at verse 35. Paul says, we'll get to this part in a little bit, but it's, it's relevant right here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall And then look at the things he mentions. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul is saying, are these, can these things separate us from God's love? No. If we face distress or danger or the sword, does that mean God's love has left us? No. And what I think this means is that for Paul and for the people he was writing to, these things, tribulation, distress, and persecution and famine, these were things that, are all, that were all still on the table. Like this could happen. But don't let it make you think that God has abandoned you or no longer loves you because you're going through those difficult things of verse 35. These things are still on the table for Paul and, and for his readers. But nevertheless, God is using all things that come through God's hand for our good, conformative, conforming to the image of Jesus. You get a little picture of this in Paul's own testimony. If you want to flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, man, you get this incredible litany of the dangers and the trials that Paul went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. But let me, uh, let me tell you a little bit from 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's story of why we have to correctly interpret Romans 8, 28. Because Paul's, Paul's life wasn't easy. And if you want to remember a little bit about Paul's life from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me give you four numbers, okay? 5313. Can you remember that? 5313. When you think about Paul, remember those numbers. 5313. Maybe you want to make that your pin number, okay? Everybody else in the room now knows your pin number. 5313. Look uh, with me if you're there. In verse 24, he says, five, what's the five stand for? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Five times. 40 lashes less one. I did the math on this. 39 times five is 195. How many lashes would it take me before I began to believe that God has abandoned me? How many lashes for you would it take where you would give up and say, these circumstances must mean that God has, has abandoned me, that he no longer loves me. I can't take it anymore. But not just five. The next one is three. What follows the three? He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Three times. Beaten with rods. Five, three, one. The next thing he says is, once I was stoned. 
And he's not talking about this the way some of you guys are talking about being stoned. He's, the, the, I was stoned. Sorry, that was inappropriate. Five, three, one, and then three. Once I was stoned three times, I was shipwrecked. Three times shipwrecked. Five, three, one, three. He goes on. He says, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. And I think I counted eight times here he uses the word danger. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger of false brothers. Are you getting the picture? Like, he's not going through all these dangers thinking, Romans 8, 28, any minute it's going to stop. That's not the way he interpreted it in his own words. 5, 3, 1, 3, adrift at sea. And then he goes on just to say, toil, hardship. And then an obvious one, sleepless night. Well, you think so? Sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You can't interpret Romans 8, 28 apart from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and the, the very life story of the guy who wrote it. But the confidence that we have here is that in spite of all that persecution, in spite of all the suffering and the pain and, and the loss that you may be experiencing even this morning, God, in his good sovereignty, is working all things for our good, and that is making us more like Jesus. And I say that this morning because if you're not there now, one day you will be. And I don't want to come in your hospital room and, and read Romans 8.28 to you. I want you to have it in your head and heart right now, downloaded by the Holy Spirit. So when, then you, when you meet danger, when you meet persecution or distress or all these things, you, you've got it there now. Okay, yeah, this is one of those crucibles God is using in my life to transform me, to conform me into his image. He uses every circumstance even the pain, especially the pain. If we just think often, some of our greatest growth happens in the season of difficulty, doesn't it? In the times of suffering is when we often grow the most. You just even just think about it in a, in a health aspect. If you're, if you're working out, if you're trying to get health, healthier, you're working out, you're exercising, you're lifting weights, you're actually, that's suffering. I don't know about you, but that's suffering to me, Right? <laughs> But that suffering is, is making you stronger. And it's often these seasons of suffering and difficulty that God uses most to be the crucibles of conforming us into the image of Jesus and making us more like him. There's sometimes that we can see how God works it out for good. And he does work it out materially for good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my parents' house in Oklahoma flooded. It has nothing to do with Houston or anything like that. They were out on vacation, pipe bust upstairs, and they come home from vacation with four inches of water in their living room. They're out of their house for six weeks. You know, what a bummer. Now, insurance is great. They get put up in a nice place, and my dad says, we're going to make some updates to the house. We're going to get better floors. We're going to extend the closet. We're going to make this house better for resale. Hey, God worked it out for good, you know? That's one on a micro level. You can say God worked it out for good, and it does kind of have a, a physical, tangible, kind of earthly good to it. But most things we struggle with, we don't see the good that quickly. I mean, what's the good, God, in hundreds of thousands of people fearing for their lives 
Millions of people running from a hurricane, died from a hurricane, died from an earthquake. Cancer. God, how can that work out for good? It's not that simple. It's not that easy to say, it happened here, but this is the way God made it nice. This is the way he delivered me from inconvenience. And so we have to be careful to interpret it rightly and not poorly. And we also have to be careful uh, in the timing in which we use this verse. Christians, get this, believe it or not, Christians can be insensitive. You know that? We just, I'm sorry if that's a surprise to you, but we just can. And sometimes, you know, we, we don't know what to say. It's awkward. And so we just spout out, hey, all, God works all things together for good to those who love, love God. And instead of that being a, a comfort, it's like you've walked into a hospital room or a, a place of grief and you've just got this oozy of Bible bullets and you're beating people up. I don't want to come into your hospital room and say Romans 8, 28, but I want you to hear it this morning. I want you to be ready for it when you're in the hospital room. One pastor has said the job of a pastor and preacher is to help people suffer and die well. And if you don't have Romans 8, 28 in the, in the heart, downloaded in your heart to when these circumstances come, you're not going to be the better off for it. But we've got to be careful about the timing in which we use this because Romans 8.28 is meant to be a comfort. It's meant to be a balm. It's, it's meant to, to, to not be a shotgun or an assault, but comfort. You know, my kids, they love uh, getting the water guns and just surprising me, coming around the corner and just spraying me right in the face with the water gun. That's, that's the way some people treat or it feels like Romans 8.28 comes, comes around. It's meant to be a comfort. It's meant to be the sovereignty of God that, that you lie and put your head on the pillow at night and say, in spite of everything that happened today, God's still good and he's still sovereign and he's still working in me, he's still working on me. So be careful how you use Romans 8.28. But John Newton, John Newton wrote the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton said this, everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. As Christians, we have these two, right here in Romans 8, we have these two wonderful truths. We are incredibly weak. If you don't know that, you need to know that. So weak, we don't even sometimes know what to pray for. But God helps us. And on the other hand, we are incredibly confident because we know God's got a plan and he's working it all out for good. So at the same time, we are both weak and confident. We are both humbled as well as hopeful. If you are here this morning and you just feel depleted and you feel weak good news weak people are the only people that God uses he doesn't have any other choice you feel weak you're in a good place to be used by God if you walk with a strut you walk overly confident you need to be reminded that your confidence is not in your strength but your confidence is in the strength and the sovereignty of God because you are weak yourself. I wrote here in my notes here, spiritual growth is not an escalating ascent to strength, but a growing dependence upon the strength and sovereignty of God. Let me read that again. 
Spiritual growth is not an escalating ascent to strength, but a growing dependence upon the strength and sovereignty of God. God is working in you. God is working on you. God has not abandoned you, even in the difficulty, even in the suffering. How do we know that? The last verses, verses 31 through 39, show us how the confidence that we can have in God's love. There's why, why we know we can be confident. Look again with me at verse 31 and following. The heading in my Bible says, God's everlasting love. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. And look at verse 38. Look at how verse 38 starts. He says, for I am sure. Now think about this. Think back to our passage. He started this passage by saying, we don't know. And then he says, but we know this. And he gets to verse 38 and he says, but I am sure. You see that growing confidence? We don't know, but we know this. And verse 38, I am sure. What is he sure about? I am sure that neither death nor life. Is there any other mode of being? Like half alive, half dead. We know that whether life, death, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, not anything that happened today, not anything that happened tomorrow or next week, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just to sum it all up there at the end, he says, nor anything else in all creation, including yourself. Neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The crescendo of this passage shows us that we are secure. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We all have existentially two questions. Every person, every human asks, am I loved and does love last? And the answer of these verses is yes and yes. We are loved and love lasts. Is not a God, God's love is not just sentimental. God's love takes us through hell and on to eternity, the hells of this life. His love is certain, his love is secure. What could you possibly think would separate you from God's love this morning? Nothing. Your own weakness, your own sin a disease, a trial, even death, none of that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The reason, specifically, how much do we know that God loves us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? God's given you a son. How will he not also give you what you need? Tony Dungy is a great coach, many admired by many, former coach, the Colts. The first year that Tony Dungy uh, took the Colts to the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl, was also the same year that Coach Dungy lost his oldest son, James. He gave a speech that year uh, to some reporters and some athletes, and uh, he talked about the way God had worked through the loss of James. And after the funeral, he had found out through emails and other testimonies that there were so many people that were inspired to mend their relationship with their dad or with their parents because of the testimony of that funeral. There was, uh, his son was an organ donor, and two people had been given corneas and could now see because of James being an organ donor. They were able to see again. A girl, uh, uh, a girl who heard the testimony was not a believer, became a believer as she watched the family and their faith in Jesus. And, and Tony Dungy, in the speech, he said that he, he uh, knew that his son's death, death had benefited a lot of people. He said that he thought about a conversation that he would have with God. He said that if the conversation went, went like this, uh, Tony, I can help some people, and, and some people will be saved eternally, uh, but, it will be, but it will require the death of your son, and he has said, I knew the answer to that question. No, never. I would not do that. I know the good that God has made out of it, but I would never do that. And Dungy goes on to say, but here's the good news. God, our Father in heaven, every time that's asked of him, he says, yes, I'll give my son, my one and only son. Every time he says yes. And Jesus goes to the cross for us. And this has been criticized. People have said, that's, that's sick. That's, div- that's divine. That's cosmic child abuse. God gave his son. Now, the Bible says, Jesus himself said, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, we're going to exercise out of the overflow of our love, this love, the people that we have created, and we're going to do it through the death of Jesus. And he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you know God loves you? It's not by looking at your circumstances. If you look at your circumstances, you will doubt God's love for you. The way you know God loves you is by looking at the cross. And the cross says, God loved you so much, he gave Jesus. And Jesus loved you so much that he gave his very blood for you. His love is secure, his love is steady, his love for you is eternal. And his love lasts. As we come to the table this morning to celebrate God's love for us. We see it tangibly. We see it physically. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, we're reminded that God loved us to such an extent that Jesus would bleed for us. Would you pray with me?
I want to go ahead and invite our servers to come forward and take the elements to your station as we pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and we, uh, we confess our weakness that we don't know how to navigate life ourselves, that we have so much temptation in our life, so much that uh, is beyond our control in our jobs, with our kids and relationships, that we just, uh, we desperately need you, God. But we thank you, God, that we come to you also this morning with a faith, with a confidence that you are working your good plan, which ultimately benefits us and our good. Jesus, we thank you for loving us tangibly. We thank you for giving your body, for giving your blood to pay the debt that we deserve and give us the life that we don't deserve. As we come forward this morning, I pray that that love would be implanted in our hearts, that we would draw on that in whatever circumstance we face this week and whatever trial comes our way. We would not look to that trial to affirm your love for us, but we would look to the cross and the face of Jesus. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Jesus, that last night with his disciples, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had give, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This morning as we come, we remember God's great love for us demonstrated in the cross and we anticipate his great love for us as Jesus comes again to usher in a new kingdom of peace and health and holiness. Come and celebrate our Savior.